in all of English history, there's only one monarch that was given the title of great. That was Alfred the Great. In all of the history of Greece, for all of its great warriors and, and its kings and leaders, there's only one that's given the title of great. Alexander the Great. In the entire history of Persia, only one king is called great, and that was Cyrus. There has never been a Chinese emperor called great. Genghis Khan comes as close to any, but, uh, but no Chinese warrior or leader is called the great. We have no president called the great. For example, we don't say Abraham, President Abraham the great. The, the title is really reserved in history for, for people who may not have been may or may not have been great in the moral sense of the, of the word, 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 but they are simply larger than life, you know, that they, uh, they are able to accomplish amazing things, tremendous things, and they are these huge personalities on this stage of human history. And I, ironically, though, the only king in Israel's history to be called great was actually Herod. He was called Herod the Great. Uh, I, I think he probably... He was called Herod the Great because he said, you're going to call me Herod the Great. Uh, because truthfully, he was an absolute psychopath whose reign was a, a, a veritable bloodbath filled with murder and with treachery. Herod the Great killed so many of his own family members that the emperor, uh, of, uh, 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 emperor Augustus, the emperor at the time, he made a joke about Herod and he said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Because you had a better chance of surviving. So Herod's greatness, if he was going to be called great at all, it was derived from architecture. He was a great builder of structures, including the, the famed temple in Jerusalem. But, but he was also a horrendous destroyer of lives. In my opinion, the only king of Israel who, who merited the honor of being called the great was not the maniacal Herod, but a complex and controversial man who reigned a thousand years before Herod, that was David of Bethlehem. The only king, uh, uh, who, who, well, listen, even, even those dismissive of the Bible, even people who say, I don't believe the Bible, they, they can't deny that David is among the most famous names in all of world literature. Even if David were nothing more than a myth, his story would be the stuff of, of legends. I mean, giant slayer, warrior, chieftain. He was an outlaw, a mercenary, a lover, a poet, a musician, and sometimes even a prophet. And he's great by any measure. He, he's considered to be the true father of the nation of Israel, even though Saul was its first king. But the truth is, you cannot fully understand the history of Israel nor have a true sense of the Bible uh, as a whole story without David. Would it surprise you to, to learn that, that more has been written about David in, in the Bible than any other Bible character? Uh, Abraham has 14 chapters devoted, devoted to his life, and so, so does Joseph. Jacob has 11 chapters. E Elijah has 10 chapters. Does anybody here have any idea how many chapters are ded dedicated to David? 66, by my count, if I, unless I'm wrong. 66 chapters devoted to him, and that's not counting references to him out of the New Testament. 
And when you realize how much is said about David in, in the scriptures, coupled with the fact that on two occasions he's specifically, specifically called a, a man after God's own heart, you begin to realize that he is a very important and a central figure in the story of God's salvation of humanity. He is a massive part of God's story of bringing salvation to this world. And that's why we're going to study his life. And David's life, we're going to see, it includes the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. I mean, he could be a man of great integrity, and then he could sin in the worst ways imaginable. He, he could be a man of impeachable integrity, and, and, and then he could lie and kill to cover his own guilt. He was very complex, and he could be great in one moment and horrible in the next. In other words, he's just like us. Isn't that the truth? And, 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 and the, the good news about that is, if there's anything that we learn through the story of David, if there's something that's an overarching theme, something that we can glean from it, it is this, it is that if God could use David, he can use me. So that's kind of the foundation of what we want to, what we want to talk about. And if we want to study David's life, if we really want to understand him, the first thing we need to do is we, we need to understand the times of David. There, there's no way to really understand David outside of the times in which he, he lived. Because I, I think there's a lot of uh, Bible reading, Bible believing Christians that see David in a much more sophisticated era of history than the one in which he actually lived. Uh, they, they do not understand the, the primitive character of the culture in which he lived and the primitive nature of the people among whom he lived and, the, and whom he led. I think it's important for us to get this clear in our mind because I, I think it's important for us to look at it and understand uh, where he was because, I'll, I'll mention this later, because there are a lot of people that view David as if he's a Christian. Can I tell you this? David is not a Christian. Christ had not been born yet. He was a follower of the God of Israel, but you can't look at him and, and place New Testament Christian values on the life of a man that lived during his era. When you do that, then you'll get thoroughly confused and say, I don't get how he could do this. How could he do this and be called a man after God's own heart? You have to understand that God deals with each of us where we are, right? So God uh, was dealing with David in the era in which he lived with the knowledge that he had, the revelation of God that he had. And so that's the, the context of that. But, but in order to get this in our mind, I think it's, I want us to look at the, this is kind of strange to start the study of David on, in Matthew, but I want you to look at Matthew chapter 1. And by the way, um, we, we will from time to time read portions of scripture in this study. But uh, if we try to read every passage with the story of David's life, we're going to spend more time in here reading than actually talking about it. So I'm going to encourage you to be reading the, the life story of David. Make it part of your devotional. Uh, most of you are very familiar with the, the passages and the stories that are there anyway. Uh, but there will be certain times we will read it. But I want to read from Matthew chapter 1 because it's, it's important. And a lot of people miss this. Matthew chapter 1 Verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And it goes on and goes through this long list of names, but then skip down to verse 5 and see what it says there. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who remembers Rahab? Who, who was Rahab? Rahab was a harlot. Rahab was a harlot, which is a real nice uh, King James uh, way of saying she was a prostitute. Right? She was the prostitute from Jericho that helped the two spies in, and hid them in Jericho. Now, it's not clear who Salmon was, but certainly we know he was one of Joshua's soldiers. Some people actually believe he was one of those two spies. We don't know that for sure, but we, we know he was one of Joshua's soldiers. I mean, if he were one of those two spies, that would put a nice edge on it, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, that she saves them and then they end up getting married, but... Uh, we don't know if that's the case or not, but whoever he was, whatever soldier he was, Salmon marries this pagan prostitute. And she marries into the Jewish life and she marries into Judaism as a faith and, it, and it accepts that, that faith and puts her, her trust in the God of Israel. And now, now let's keep reading. Verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, already we're tying in another story, the story of Ruth. Who, who, who can tell me where Ruth was born? Anybody remember? That's, that's it. Moab. She was a Moabite woman. Because she was born in Moab, she was not a Jewish person. She was a Gentile. She was a pagan, if you will, because all Gentiles were pagan. They did not believe in the one true God. And in fact, most of them had never even heard of him. So in two generations now... Uh, you have two Gentile women in the story, okay? Let's read again. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David, okay? We have, how many generations are there? Okay, I'm, get, I'm giving you a real clue right here. <laughs> it's like, if you pay attention, you see, I, I, make, I make the answers as easy as possible. <laughs> how many... I'm not going to be doing this number with four up here and one down here. You know, I'm not going to try to trick you. Uh, so, so here you have in only four generations, but I want you to catch this because we don't realize, we tend to, to stretch things out in our mind historically. We don't realize the era in which he lived. It's only four generations from the fall of Jericho, that's Salmon and Rahab, Four generations from the fall of Jericho to the birth of David. Did you realize it was that close? He, he is, David's great-great-grandmother was a Gentile prostitute. His great-grandmother was a Gentile, and his birth, get this, because it's only four generations from the, from the uh, fall of Jericho, that means it's only five generations from being delivered from slavery in Egypt. Now, how many of you have ever seen, or maybe your family has taken a five-generational picture? That's not a very long period of time. So, so what you've got here, you, you've got this, this, this nation, this group of people in Israel 
They're really fresh out of slavery. They're trying to carve out this country. There is no real nation per se other than the fact that they are all part of the same family, came from Abraham. Uh, there, there was this really more of a loose confederation of tribes. And there's a lot of squabbling between them. Anybody have family spats in your, when you were growing up? I know it doesn't happen now, not with your kids. But, uh, uh, but, uh, but there's a lot of squabbling among them. And the history of Israel is just blotted with internal warfare. The people of Israel killed each other almost as much as they killed the Philistines for, for this period of time. There's this constant bickering, disunity, and dysfunction. Now, to, to continue to set the stage, there are two books that come right before the coming of King David. And they're very, very important to, to, to set up and understand the life of David. One is the book of Judges, and the other is the book of Ruth. Ruth is important, first of all, because it, it, it ties into David. We see where David came from. Uh, we see that this young widow fell in love with Boaz, and they got married, and Obed was their child, and Jesse was his child, and David was Jesse's child. And what Ruth does is it ties David to the city of Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, ties David to the city of Bethlehem. And we'll come to back to Bethlehem in just a minute. Now, another important book that precedes David's story is the book of Judges. And, and Judges is really it's an unfortunate translation. Uh, for, for lack of a better one, it's, it works. But the, the book you know, might be translated saviors or deliverers or, you know, or, or, or God-raised charismatic leaders. But that's a really bad name for a book. So we'll just stick with Judges. Uh, however, they were not judges in the sense that we think of judges. That's the unfortunate part of it. We think of judges sitting there in a courtroom with a robe and a gavel or we think of somebody that's sitting there and you bring your problems to them and they judge between it well they may have done some of that but that wasn't really the main fun function of the judges the main functions were that when Israel got in a situation where they needed deliverance uh, that God would raise up a judge a leader in the nation to to lead them to freedom in, in that situation and they were men and women, warriors and leaders, e even some prophets among them. And near the end of the book of Judges, uh, the, the system of these subsequent d deliverances that, that come through the Judges, it just the book of Judges just ends in this nasty decline. It's just this downward spiral in the nation of Israel, uh, morally and spiritually speaking. A and we find out that the system of raising up judges as needed, it just didn't work. In fact, the final verse in the book of Judges describes the era in which David arose. It says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I mentioned the book of Ruth, that it ties David to the city of Bethlehem. Well, here's the thing. Bethlehem does not appear in scripture until the story of Ruth. And up until that point in time, it was of no importance at all. And there are three important events that are recorded in Bethlehem. First, there's the coming of Ruth, which is recorded in the book of Ruth. Second is the birth of David. And the third is what? The birth of Jesus. That's right. And they're all of the same line, all the same family, all tied to this tiny, tiny little village. And remember this, I'm just trying to situate this thing for you historically. At the birth of David, there is no city of Jerusalem. It does not exist yet. 
there, there, there's no city of Jerusalem. It's actually, there is a city there, but it's called, the city is called Jebus. And Jebus is owned, surprisingly, by the Jebusites. And, and it's a Jebusite garrison. It, it, it's a fortress. Uh, and it's about, you know, 10, maybe 15 miles from the city of Bethlehem. And David, he's born and he's brought up as a shepherd in a small village in close proximity to this Gentile fortress called Jebus. Okay? Now, in that setting... During this time period, there were also some other groups of people, other tribes of people that surround and kind of intermingle and live among the Israelites. And these groups fought and terrorized and oppressed the, the Hebrew people. In the far south uh, of, of Israel, there was a, a group called the Amalekites. And they were, they were a depraved group of people. They are violent. They are raiders. The, the Amalekites were sort of like the Vikings were to England. And if, you don't, and if the fact that I know what that means, if you don't know what that means, it just means that I'm that much of a geek that I, that I like history. Uh, but the, the Vikings, when they would raid down from the north and, 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 and invade England, they would burn everything and kill everybody and kill lots of people and, and rape all the women and then disappear back into Denmark. And, uh, and, and whenever the, the English just dreaded the, the coming of the Vikings. Well, the, the, the Hebrews in the Negev, which is, that's the southern plains of Israel. It's the desert area down there. They dreaded the coming of the Amalekites, and they would raid in that area. They were in the south. And in the west, uh, up along the coast there by the Mediterranean Sea, there's another group of people that they're more sophisticated than the Amalekites, the Philistines. Now, although they're more sophisticated, they're still a very... Uh, barbaric, cruel, and violent people. And, and, and in the, the center, the, the capital city of Philistia, is a city called Gath. Now, who can tell me who the favorite son of Gath was? Who said that? Boy, you're good with these places. Goliath, that's right. Goliath was from Gath. And, and, uh, and the Philistines... They have one great invention that causes them to be able to dominate the Hebrew people. Any, any guesses of what that might be? Boy, you're good. You're on top of it. They, the Philistines had discovered iron. They knew how to make iron. They had the means uh, and they were capable of forging iron. But the Hebrew people only had bronze. Uh, and so, listen, if you've got a, one soldier with a bronze sword fighting another soldier with an iron sword, the guy with the iron sword is going to win that battle most of the time. It's like, how many of you ever played rock, paper, scissors? All right? Just imagine playing rock, paper, scissors, only you're only playing, the only two choices are bronze and iron, and, I, and bronze loses every time. That was Israel. Now, and the reason that they didn't have iron yet at this point in time, even though it was the, the technology was available, was because the Philistines had it first, and they had more or less occupied the land where Israel uh, dwelled, and they had passed a law that said it was illegal for the Hebrews to own anything iron. They could not own an iron plow or an iron tool of any kind because they didn't want them to be able to shape that into a weapon. And, and they, in fact, they, it was illegal. They wouldn't, could not have places where they could forge iron. And so the Hebrews, at the time of Saul, just before David came on the scene, think about this, they're still living in the Bronze Age. 
See, we, we get this idea that David lived in a much more sophisticated time than he did. I'm trying to help you understand the primitive character of the times in which David was born. Now, before Saul, there has never been a king in Israel. And you can't understand David without understanding Saul. Uh, there, there is, in Saul's time, there is no national government. I mentioned that earlier. There is, you know, there's no constitution. There's no bylaws. There are no elections. All you have is this, these individual tribes that rule themselves and they are a loose confederacy, and if this tribe's in trouble, this one might come and help. But, but that's all they had. And all they had as far as leadership was this, uh, this kind of loose process by which tribal leaders uh, uh, and tribal elders would kind of rise through the ranks. And, and it was just the whole period, it was a time of trouble and chaos for the people of Israel. Indeed, at, at the end of the book of, of Judges, there's a horrible, horrible story I'm not going to go into all the details, the great details, but maybe you remember the story about a man, I believe he was a Levite, who went into a certain town and, and uh, the men of that city came and started knocking on the door and they wanted to rape the man. And instead, the, the, uh, he takes refuge in the house of a man in, the, in the, that town and, and the man pushes out his concubine out the door and the men, uh, and I'm sorry for being so graphic, but we're, you know, we're adults here and this is reality. They, they raped that, that girl all night long until she died. And then that man, in response, takes her body and chops it up into 12 pieces and sends one piece of her body to each of the 12 tribes of Israel as a means of calling the men of Israel to action, saying, this, this is a part of this girl who was killed by these people in, in, in this city. What are you going to do about it? And all that happened in the city of Gibeah. Now, who can tell me who was born in Gibeah? Saul. In fact, one generation after this horrible incident with these violent men, the first king of Israel is raised up out of Gibeah. Saul would have been a, a, either a child or a young man when all of that took place. He knew about it. He was right there. And Saul, for all of his weaknesses, he really was an important person in the life of Israel because he, he gathered the, the tribes of Israel to himself. He, we, we know he was a huge man. Uh, the Bible says he was the tallest man in the nation of Israel. And the way it says it, it says that he was head and shoulders above everyone else. In other words, the second tallest man of, in Israel only came to his shoulder. He was that much bigger. He was a massive individual and and Saul was this impulsive guy to say the least he was highly emotional he he kind of lived on the edge of being out of control yet Saul was very important historically to the nation of Israel because he unified the kingdom in its initial stages because to the to the before Saul when there was a war to be fought the tribes just kind of did their own thing but Saul began to 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 pulled together an army for the nation of Israel out of all the tribes and led them and he unified the tribes. So, so Saul, for all of his mistakes, all of his sins, all of the problems that he created, he did do some good things. And he, and he made two huge decisions. One of them arises from that story I just told you about what took place in Gibeah because he makes the decision to banish sodomy. He makes homosexuality illegal again in Israel, which it was in the, in the law of Moses, and he begins to enforce it. And the other decision 
is that he, makes a, uh, he takes a hard line against witchcraft. Both of those things are important later on in the study as we see uh, Paul's spiral, Saul's spiral, not Paul, but a different man all, over, all together, Saul's spiral out of control. Now the problem is that Saul is operating out of, emo, out of his emotions. And, and, and this is something for us to learn. He's up with God one, at one moment. And he's down with God the next. He's, he's all over the place emotionally. He's, he's a great leader one moment and a horrible leader the next. He's, he just bounces all over the board. Uh, now, David did too in a lot of ways, but the, the difference was David's response to it as opposed to Saul's response to it. So we'll see that in a few minutes. And finally, after all this, due to his disobedience, and we're not taking a lot of time with Saul because this is not a study of his life, uh, God just uh, sends the, the last of the judges, Samuel. He sends him, brings, he, Samuel bridges the gap between the time of the judges and the beginning of the Jewish monarchy. And Samuel serves as the last judge. And he also serves as the prophet who initiates the monarchy. Because it was Samuel that God used to select and to anoint Saul as king. He's anointed as king by Samuel. It's also Samuel whom God uses to remove Saul. And he goes to Saul and he says, hey, you are not the king anymore. God has removed you. His anointing is gone. He is not with you. The kingdom is going to be ripped from you. And that really leads us to the beginning of the story of David. Now, if you have your Bible, let's leave Matthew and flip back to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to read a little bit there. As I said, I'm not going to, in the coming weeks, I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading the scriptures because I think a lot of them are very familiar to you, but uh, I want you to have 1 Samuel 15 and 16 in your mind tonight, and I encourage you to read the life of, of David uh, in the coming uh, weeks. Now remember, Saul and David are both selected as, as king prophetically. A prophet shows up, anoints them as king, says God has chosen you. There, there, there's no election, there's no selection, there's no means of approval, there's no, nobody votes, there's no counsel, you know, taken. God simply announces to one man in private who the king is. But the problem for David and Saul, they're both anointed king. The problem is the overlap between the private reality and the public appearance. I'll show you what I mean. Verse uh, 24 of chapter 15. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Now, I'm not going to get into the story of what happened. You can read about that. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for I, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned about to go, he seized the edge of his robe and, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, this is a typical prophetic statement. He takes a physical action and makes a statement out of it. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now that's a huge, huge word, a huge statement right there uh, to an egotist. And Saul is your quintessential egotist. Because he did not just say he's giving this kingdom to somebody else. He said, he's giving this kingdom to somebody better than you. All right. So look at what comes next. Verse 29. 
Also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. In other words, God is saying, I've made up my mind. I'm not changing it. It's over, Saul, no matter what you say, no matter what you do. Then he said, I, he said, I have sinned, yet please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel and turn back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. What that means is that Saul admitted in private with Samuel, God has withdrawn his anointing from me. In reality, I am no longer king, but I still want to have the appearance I, what I want is the power. What I want is to maintain the position. What I want is the prestige. Even if God can't be with me, at least come up here to, and do that for me. And Samuel agrees and he goes on the platform with, with Saul. And they do the worship service in front of the elders. And the elders do not know about this private withdrawal of the anointing of God. And Samuel the prophet then leaves Gibeah and goes to this tiny little village of Bethlehem under the direct instruction of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him from ruling over Israel? So we know that Samuel, some amount of time has passed. Samuel is grieving because the man that he had anointed king has fallen so far, and, and he's grieving over Saul. He loves Saul, and, and he hated to see what happened. And, he, and the Lord says, Are you, you going to mope around forever? I've got, I've got plans here if you want to be part of it. And he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have chosen a king for myself from among his sons. So Samuel goes down there. He finds David in Bethlehem and anoints him as king. And thereby begins the tale of the first phase of David's life. Now, it's important for us to remember at this moment that uh, David at this moment is, is a little boy. He's a very young, young man. Uh, you know, if, if you see Michelangelo's statue of David and you think David in this moment, you need to get that out of your mind. At this point in time, he's, he's a little boy or at best a very, very young man. He's probably an elementary age schoolboy with, with, you know, tussled hair and he's got a sunburned nose. Bible says that he was ruddy, which means, you know, that he's probably either sunburned or maybe tan from being out with the sheep all the time. Says that he's that he had a handsome appearance, uh, probably looked a lot like me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I don't want to make anybody lose your supper or anything there. So, uh, and, and so, so David's out there watching the sheep, and I'm not. And, and at this point in time, we're not getting into the whole story of all the brothers coming. Uh, but David comes in. Think about this. Now, it may be one of whoever Jesse sent out to get David told him what was going on, but. He has no idea what's happening. He's been out in the, in the field. Uh, and so he walks in. Here's this old guy with a beard, you know, and he walks in and says, and God says, that's the man. And Samuel says, let me pour some oil on you. David's like, hey, hey, what's going on here? You know, he, he, just, he really doesn't understand what's going on. Even if he knows that he's going to be anointed king, he really does not understand. He's too young to fully understand what this means. And from that moment on, David's world has changed. In, a, in some ways, it's destroyed. He, he, uh, his childhood is stolen from him because no longer can he just be a kid playing in the fields. He's the future king of Israel. Uh, from that moment on, David really has no childhood anymore. Everything in his life from that moment on 
what is really happening is it's moving him toward the different crisis points of his life. And we're going to get into those crisis points in coming weeks. But the problem here, David's anointed king. But the real problem with the fact that David's anointed king is that there's already a king. So you've got this overlap where David has been anointed king by God. So he, in reality, is the king of Israel. But then you've got the public perception of Saul being the king. So Saul is still king in public. And here's this little boy who's king in reality. One is in the royal palace in Gibeah. And one is in a sheep shed in Bethlehem. You know, and you begin to look at this story and you say, how... Will they ever collide? How will they ever connect? How will God move David from his father's sheep pen in Bethlehem to the tents of the king in Gibeah? How, you know, David's part of the tribe of Judah. Saul is part of the tribe of Benjamin. David's from a poor shepherd family. Saul is the king of the nation in the sense of that it is beginning to be a nation. So David is this little boy and Saul is this massive warrior. How in the world will God ever get them together? And when he does get them together, what is the inevitable result? Because if you are a power-mad, emotionally overwrought, virtually psychopathic, murderous king who wants to retain hold of your throne at any cost and into your presence walks an innocent, guileless little boy that somebody somewhere you heard them say, you know, I heard a rumor that Samuel met, uh, met this boy down in Bethlehem and anointed him. I wonder why he did that. I wonder what's going on. And the wheels begin to turn inside of that, that, that power crazed King Saul. What is the inevitable result? You can see that these two lives are about to collide ferociously. And the first great crisis of David's life is the collision of these two men. Now, as I said earlier, do not impose on David. This is very important. Any historical era, except the one in which he lived. If you do, you're going to, uh, you're not going to understand any of the decisions that he made. You know, David was a polygamist. He had many wives. He had many concubines. Uh, and if you try to uh, take 21st century Christian values and apply them to David, it's not going to make any sense. As I said, David was not a Christian. He was a Jew. He was a follower of the God of, of Israel. Uh, but, 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 you know, I mean, I think sometimes people see David as a 21st century Southern Baptist. You know, and if that's the case, he's not a very good Southern Baptist, right? So David is a shepherd who's in whose lineage in the four previous generations, there were two women, both of whom were Gentiles and one of whom was a prostitute. He's born in a very primitive culture at the, at the end of the Bronze Age. He's only five generations removed from slavery in Egypt. He's king before he can understand that, what that even means. It takes nearly 20 years for that, for that to become reality in his life, to become the actual king of Israel. And, and, and his life is lived in unending controversy. He makes horrible, unbelievable decisions that are so incredibly stupid that you can't even begin to fathom where his mind was at the moment. Then he shows magnificent courage and insight into the character and nature of God that transcends his age, and he writes things in the Psalms. He writes those Psalms with insights into the nature and character of God that go well beyond what he should have been able to grasp at his age. 
He is the preeminent hero of two major books of the Old Testament, and he's the principal author of the third, the book of Psalms. Of all the monarchs of Israel, certainly David is worthy of the title Great. And no matter the times in which you live, no matter how evil the culture is around you, no matter how badly the odds are stacked against you, God will raise up a man after his own heart. And you can be encouraged by the victories of David, and we can be warned by the failures of David. You can also know, and this is a great thing, just like David, God will be with you through it all. Think about all, I mean, aside from the great things David did, think of the sin. Think of the horrible decisions and the consequences it brought. And yet, through it all, one, and we'll, we'll actually eventually get there with this. I want you to think about this. Saul committed horrible sins, yet God rejected him. David committed horrible sins, yet God did not. He, he did not reject him from the throne. I think one of the questions that we're going to ask during the study is, why David, not Saul? And it really comes, comes back to being a man after God's own heart. The response to the sins. You, you Saul, we just saw, when the kingdom was taken from him, he said, he, instead of saying, he did say, I've sinned, but he wanted to make, keep it private. He didn't want anybody else to know. He said, all right, all right, I hear you, I've sinned, and since I can't be king anymore, at least just let me go on with the appearance. David, as we'll see later on, when he sinned, he wanted to make sure everybody knew it, knew what he did, and that he was wrong, and he repented from uh, over those sins truly. That's a huge difference. And so uh, let it be an encouragement to us tonight. We'll close with this that if God was with David and didn't reject him because of sin, how much more with the work of Christ and the cross, how much more will we not be rejected by God? Now, that doesn't mean, you know, that we just go run willy-nilly, whatever that means. Sorry. Sorry, Willie. <laughs> I, I guess I can't use that here. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Willie. They're going to call you Sister Willie Nilly. <laughs> but we can't just go run crazy and just do whatever we want and say, "Oh, but you know, God won't reject me. I'll repent." Paul Paul talks about that in Romans, and he says, he says, "Should we sin because all the more because grace abounds all the more?" He says, "God forbid." He said, "No." And the truth is, if you do that, you truly do not do not understand God's grace. Uh, God's grace is not a ticket to do whatever you want to do. It's, it, God's grace is a, is, a, uh, is a doorway to become who you were meant to be. Big difference. But how much more do we not have to fear the rejection of God if we respond in true repentance the way David did? And David, you know, not just his sin, but we're going to see in coming weeks the, the lowest of the lows, hiding in a cave, in a wilderness, 
running from his father-in-law who's trying to kill him. And yet God was with him in the lowest lows. And then reaching the very highest of heights and becoming the king of Israel. The best of times. And God was with him. So that's, that's what we're going to close with tonight. And the, the, I think if there's an, one theme that could run through it all is that no matter where you are, no matter where you go, whether it's good times or bad times, whether you've sinned or you've made the best choice in your life, the reality is you can count on the presence of God being with you to, to walk with you through that. And being aware of that gives us hope in the down times and keeps us humble in the, in the best of times and keeps us repentant in the times when we have failed. God's good, isn't he? Amen. Let's, let's bow our heads together. Father.